Hagerstown Church, I want to invite you to have a seat. And as you do, I want to dismiss Hubtown Kids. We pray to God this morning, to a God who is sovereign, knowing that He rules over all things. And this morning, if you are in Hubtown Kids, you are going to learn a little bit more about that. That our God is a sovereign God. He's sovereign over all situations. He's sovereign o- over every single uh, aspect and, and, uh, and the part of this world. He rules every single inch. And so we pray to Him. And we learn about him this morning. And so if you're in Hubtown Kids, I want to dismiss you to my left, uh, to uh, your right. And if there's any that go, uh, you'll go with Miss Sarah right now. Last week, we finished up our look at the, the story of the, the, of, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. It was a wonderful situation. We began our discussion in that time uh, during the interim period, if you remember, uh, while we were still kind of contemplating and praying and working through this idea as to whether our churches would be merging, uh, we began that series. And uh, we came to an end just recently, just this last week, and it was a wonderful time. It was a time of rejoicing, truly. I pray that you are doing that. Even this morning, as we now turn our attention back to the Gospel of Mark, which we began over two years ago. If you were a part of Hagerstown Church two years ago, you'll know uh, that we had begun that series right before uh, COVID uh, began, and we're going to be hopping back into it this morning. And, And so if you're interested, I don't assume that everybody here is interested in hearing almost two years worth of of Mark sermons, but if you are, uh, you can check that out on our website. You can also go uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you do, you can catch us there, hagerstownchurch.org. You can go back and listen to all of our uh, sermons. Most of them have been recorded. Some of them were lost, never to be seen again, but uh, you should be able to get caught up if you want to in a couple months. Um, At any rate, let me give you a little bit of background as to where we were a few months ago, a few weeks ago, actually. We came to the point where we saw the triumphal entry, Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Now you'll remember, or maybe you won't, but uh, Mark is broken up into three acts. The first act is Jesus in Galilee, Jesus' ministry to the the people there in Galilee. The second part is Jesus heading to Jerusalem, heading to his final days here on earth, teaching his disciples along the way. That second act, the heading to Jerusalem. And then finally, which is the section that we are in, we see the passion of Jesus there in Jerusalem. The final week of his life, we're there. Jesus uh, has entered into the city. He's been claimed and hailed as the Messiah, the Son of God. He curses the fig tree. He cleanses the temple. He's challenged by the chief priest and challenged by the scribes. We see in his final week, he's teaching continually his disciples. He's not laid down. He's not given up. He stayed focused, encouraging and teaching and instructing his disciples. And now he has been, in, he has been tested most recently here in Mark 12 by the Pharisees and by the Herodians. In the last passage, chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, they try to trip Jesus up by asking him if it's right to give taxes to Caesar. It was a very shrewd question and Jesus rises to the challenge as Jesus would And he offers a more brilliant and more shrewd answer. Render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and to God that which belongs to God. Wonderful instructions, even for us today. They went away quietly, having been soundly beaten. And now the Sanhedrin, the governing Jewish elite, send yet another attack. Let's read about that second attack here in this chapter, 
in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 18 and following, down to verse 27. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, turn there. You're also welcome to read along on the screen. This is what the Word of God says. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no child, the man must take a widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For, she, for the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word together. Father, we again turn to you, as we do every week, signifying that we have no power in and of ourselves. Father, our faculties are broken. Our ability to observe and even to reason are flawed. So we look now to your word, asking that you teach us, that you correct us, Father, that you encourage us. We need it this morning. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to ask you a question. As we think about the Sadducees, and we maybe even feel a little bit of pity for them. It's okay to do that, by the way. Have you ever been so sure of something, so absolutely confident that you were right, that you had figured it out, only in the end to discover that you were most assuredly wrong? Have you ever been there? Nothing could have changed your Nothing could have moved you. And yet in the end, you saw that you needed to be moved. The Sadducees experienced that in our text this morning. And as we work through this text verse by verse, I hope that you'll see five scenes, five signposts along the way. We'll work through those just making observations. We'll also look at three doctrines. There are three doctrines, biblical doctrines, Pieces of theology, incredibly important, that rise to the surface in this text. And as we come across those, there at the end, we'll make light, or make, uh, draw attention to them. And finally see that those three doctrines together point us to one big idea. And I am inclined to keep that to myself this morning and hold it to the end. And so five scenes, three doctrines, and one big idea. The first scene is this, verse 18. The company... The company, the company of the Sadducees, they come to Jesus. These are those who say, it says in verse 18, they say there is no resurrection. And I have to. I'm a dad, and so I'm going to go there. 
you know why the Sadducees were sad. You see, the Sadducees were sad because they did not believe in the resurrection. They believed that this life was it, and so therefore they, of course, were sad. They rejected the resurrection. But they didn't just reject the resurrection. The book of Acts, chapter 23, verse 88 says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, but also nor angels, nor spirit. But the the Pharisees acknowledge them all. You know, the Sadducees, they rejected the resurrection, but they didn't just reject the resurrection. They also rejected many other things that even us today would hold to, and even the Pharisees held to. What was the rhyme? What was the rhythm to their rejection of these things? The Sadducees took their doctrinal stance from alone the Pentateuch, alone the first five books of the Bible. They were infamous for rejecting the doctrines that were more clearly established in the prophets or maybe even in history or the Psalms. They rejected them. It's interesting, if you look back in history, the Mishnah Sanhedrin, chapter 10, verse 1, says, whoever says the resurrection of the dead cannot be deduced from the Torah has no part in the age to come. We're able to see just through this historical document that there was a war raging in the time of Jesus. The Sanhedrin, I'm sorry, the Sadducees had come onto the scene in the second century B.C., Before then, we have no tell of them, and after the destruction of the temple, we have no record of them at all, and none of their documents survive, but we do know through the New Testament scriptures and through the Mishnah that they rejected the resurrection, and they were rejected by many even of their day, believed that they would have no part in the age to come, which of course the Sadducees didn't even believe existed. And so these, this is the company. They come to Jesus, this ruling elite filled with scribes, come to Jesus and say, there's no resurrection, we've got a question to ask you. But before they ask the question, this company reminds Jesus of a command, as if Jesus needed any reminding. Look at verse 18. It says they asked him a question. Verse 19 says, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother's wife dies and leaves a wife but leaves no children the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother how many of you think that is an odd law it is it's a bit odd it's an odd indeed basically if your brother died in these days having been married but still without children you brother would marry his widow in hopes of helping that brother's line go on it was designed basically to provide descendants for this man so that his, his place in life, his place in history, and even more important, his property would not be lost and taken from this widow. Furthermore, that the widow could even be taken care of by her own children, that she wouldn't be left alone. Not that important in our day, but it's quite a big deal in those days. If, if you remember uh, Ruth, that great story of our lady Ruth and Boaz, her beau, he was her kinsman redeemer. He was her leverite. He provided for her a marriage. That law is spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. It says this, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her 
And the first son whom, whom she bare shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Why are they reminding Jesus, who is well aware of this law, why are they reminding Jesus about this law right now? Well, they believed that this particular law applied to certain situations and a hypothetical situation that they uh, quickly offer that it will create a conundrum of sorts and that it will even fool Jesus or confound him, maybe even embarrass him publicly. And this is the desire of the Sadducees as they come to Jesus. And so the company, they remind Jesus of the command and then they offer him a conundrum. Bear in mind, these men have evil intentions in their heart. They care nothing for Jesus. They care nothing for this law. They do not want his wisdom. They do not want his advice. They, like the Herodians and the, and the Pharisees before, they only want to hurt Jesus' reputation there in the public eye. And so here's their best shot. Verse 20. Jesus, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife died, left no offspring. The second took her, he died, left no offspring. The third, the fourth, all the way down to the seventh. And Jesus, last of all, the woman, she also died. And finally, in the resurrection, when they rise, Jesus, whose wife will, they, will she be? In the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will she be? That's the, that's the biggest question that they have. My big question is, isn't that a strange that seven husbands died in the same house of this woman she must have had soup that was to die for <laughs> finally maybe she drank and had her own soup because she also died and so there is a question there is a problem and it seems at first glance difficult to answer I admit, given the information that they have offered it does seem difficult how do we square all these things together Jesus, we like things to be neat and tidy. I'm sure that you know that about God. And so this is troubling. Whose wife, really, will she be? And so as we know their heart, trying to de deceive and trouble Jesus, our hearts are also troubled. No, Jesus, really, whose wife will she be? Well, this problem is not so unsolvable because Jesus points out to this company who offers the conundrum, he points out their confusion. Look at verse 25, 24, rather. He says, is this not the reason you're wrong? He's pointing back to the fact that they're Sadducees and they do not believe in the resurrection. And he says, is this not the reason that you're wrong and that you don't believe in the resurrection? You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What a terrible thing to have said about you. And what a true thing to have said about the Sadducees. Jesus goes on. For when they rise from the dead, and they will rise, when they rise, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The air gets sucked out of the room. Here's the Sadducees, teachers in Israel, scribes. And Jesus says, you don't know the holy scriptures and you are unfamiliar with the power of god may that never be said of you may that never be said of me that we do not know the scriptures for we have the scriptures even before us and we've witnessed the power of god before our very eyes 
But Jesus points out to these men who claim to care so much about the Word of God, and yet they've given it so little attention. The attention that they have given it was unfiltered and wicked. They practiced a, a habit called eisegesis, which is to lead into the text. To, they come to the text, they come to the Word of God, and instead of reading it for what it says and, and working to draw out what it is actually saying to lead out of the text, which would be exegesis, they perform eisegesis, which is to bring something into the text. My question for you this morning is this. Where does the Bible teach that marriage will be practiced in the resurrection? Where in the Bible does it teach that marriage will be practiced in the resurrection? It doesn't. What Sadducees have done here in this passage is they've brought their own preconceived ideas, their own preconceived desires into this text. And there's a warning that Jesus is giving to us by way of correcting them. When you read the scriptures, are you reading into the text or are you reading out of the text? Are you speaking when the scriptures are to be speaking? Or are you allowing them to speak as you're quiet? The Sadducees, we see this error that they've made. It appears to be a fatal one. They've read into the text and not read out of the text. There is no marriage in the resurrection, but yet there is, in fact, a resurrection. By the way, to those of you who are concerned, we're not going to spend a lot of time, but if you're concerned about your loved one and your relationship with, maybe you've just married or you've celebrated 69 years of marriage. There's some words here this morning that I think can be helpful. You might think, well, of course heaven is about loved ones. It's about reunion. Those relationships that have been severed by death and severed by sin being restored, and in some ways they are. But chief among them is our relationship with Christ, our Savior. Randy Alcorn, he mentions, really in, in, in relation to this idea of heaven being boring, but I think it applies to this idea of us not being married in eternity. He says, our belief that heaven will be boring or lonely without our loved one, you could say, it betrays a heresy that God is boring or that God will leave us feeling lonely. I think that we will see that for the lie it is if we realize that heaven is God's place and it's the person whose place it is that determines the nature and meaning of that place. He goes on to say, if we're experiencing the invigorating stirring of God's spirit and trusting him to infill our lives with divine appointments and experiencing the childlike delights of his gracious daily kindnesses to us, then we will know that God is exciting and heaven is exhilarating and it is not lonely. People who love God crave his companionship. and To be in his presence will be the very opposite of boredom. It will be the very opposite of loneliness. Does this not also apply to our marriages? This fear of being bored in heaven or being lonely. Heaven is not a place where chief among our enjoyments will be our re reunion with our loved ones, but our worshiping of our God for all eternity with our loved ones, with the church. And so Jesus has addressed their eisegesis. He's cleaned it up a bit. He's corrected them. And now he works to teach them some exegesis. If eisegesis means to bring into the text something foreign, exegesis means to bring it out. And so finally, let's look at the conclusion. 
Verse 26, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, about how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. These guys were so busy bringing their own ideas into the text that they must have forgotten to draw out of the text what it was actually saying. They were too busy talking that they weren't able to hear, to listen. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we heard just a moment ago. Moses there in the wilderness sees the burning bush, comes out from the way, comes to the burning bush, and there God speaks to him from that bush and says, I am the God of your father. I am the God of not just your father, but I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. What stirring words to hear from that very bush that was not consumed. I want you to notice what Jesus is noticing. Notice what Jesus is hearing the scriptures say, that God, the great I am, is still the God of those who are thought to be dead. He's not the God of the dead, Jesus says. He is the God of the living. To, re to reference himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, if they were dead, never to rise again, would be like a roofer who had just repaired three roofs, pointing back at these leaky roofs, saying, those are the roofs that I have roofed. But God, as he points out these men, the father of Moses and Isaac and Abraham and Jacob, he's saying, I was their savior. I was their God. I was their deliverer. And I still am their deliverer. They are not left to the great enemy, which is death. God, in this statement that Jesus is pointing to, it underlines that God has been the savior of his people. He's been the savior of these people in their life and he's been the savior of this people, the deliverer of this people, even in their death. And he's saying, it's not over yet. I am still their God. Yet again, we see Jesus confounds his enemies in public, further establishing his authority as the Messiah. And they go away quietly, and he goes about his way, heading again towards his cross. But before we close, we've seen these five scenes unfold and we've learned quite a bit. And yet there's more to be grasped from this text. Before we close this morning, I want to point out three biblical doctrines that Jesus alludes to in this text. I want you to have an opportunity to consider how you should respond to these biblical doctrines these truths. First, the doctrine of divine revelation. The doctrine of divine revelation of God giving truth, God revealing, disclosing to us things about himself, things about ourselves, things about this life, and things about the future. Theologians have divided up revelation, divine revelation, into two categories, and they are general and special general and special general revelation is god's testimony to his character 
And really, it works to give all human beings, regardless of where you live, regardless of when you were born, throughout created order, you're given the same truth. It's plain for all to see. Every human being has been given equal access to God's general revelation. Think the heavens declare the glory of God. Think the reproductive system of the human race declares the glory and existence of God. Whether we look in a telescope or in a microscope, we see evidences of God. And while it is insufficient for salvation, we are able to see through those two devices more and more about our nature and God's nature as well. We would call this general revelation. But general revelation is insufficient for salvation. And so God has also given us special revelation. Special revelation is the teaching about God and what he has done in creation, but not just in creation, but in history that has brought us to the place where we can see through the apostles and prophets something exclusively given to an exclusive group of people. At this point in time, most Jews held that the Old Testament books of the Bible had been given by God, from God. They were specially revealed to that group of people, and they were Holy Scripture. It's interesting that Jesus takes his opponents to Exodus. He could have gone to many places to defend the resurrection, to correct these men. But he went to the Pentateuch. He went to the book of Exodus. He went to Deuteronomy. Why? Because he, did, he, he saw that the Sadducees believed that these were the only five books of the Bible that were trustworthy. And so Jesus meets them there. Maybe you're asking yourself, well, if the Sadducees believed that these first five books were the only ones that were truly inspired, truly from God, why do we believe otherwise? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Sadducees and this belief, this position that they hold really came about. It really showed up in the second century B.C. And it also disappeared along with them, remember, in the first century A.D. That's more than 200 years really, though, after the last book in the Old Testament was written that they came up with this idea that none of these books were actually inspired, only the books of Moses. And that position really was late in life, late in history, and was a bit of a liberal position, very similar to those who would say that the Bible even today is not the Word of God. The New Testament, they would say, is not God's Word. It's very similar. But why still yet do we believe in the Old Testament? Why do we believe that the Word of God that we hold in our laps, that we read on the screen and sing and pray every single Sunday, why do we believe that it is in fact the Word of God? Particularly, why is the Old Testament the Word of God? Well, here, simply put, Jesus believed that the word of God was the Old Testament or that God's word was the Old Testament. He often alluded to it in his teaching. He leaned into it as if everything in the Old Testament was historical fact. And he saw himself as a fulfillment of that very scripture. He believed that they were true. He believed that they were trustworthy. And so church, God has revealed himself to us through his work and creation, and he has revealed himself through his word, the Old Testament, and even the new. I want you to think about this idea of the divine revelation, particularly in the Old Testament. Jesus looks at the Sadducees and he says, sadly about them, you don't know the scriptures. What a gift this morning that we, in this time and in this place, can access and even understand in our own language the words of God. That they would be revealed to us. 
I want to let that rest on your shoulders a minute, church. How have you responded to this idea, to this doctrine of divine revelation? How have you responded even this week? And I don't say that in a way to make you feel guilty, although if the shoe fits, maybe you should wear it. But know this, that it has been given to us. What grace, what opportunity that we in the 21st century have the very words of God, true and trustworthy, authoritative and sufficient, inerrant. What sort of appreciation for that have you shown this week? Furthermore, what will you do this week in light of this doctrine that God has communicated with us? I think of Jesus speaking with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. There in the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Well, some said John the Baptist, some said Elijah. Jesus, others are saying that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets, maybe Elijah. But Jesus looks at his disciples and he clarifies a little bit. He leans in and he says, who do you say that I am? Disciples who do you believe that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answers to him and what does he say? Blessed, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? He says, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood has not made this revelation to you, Peter. You're blessed. He says, my Father has revealed it to you. Hagerstown Church, you, we are blessed that we would have the very words of God revealed to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is not just speaking to the need that we have to appreciate the word of God, but furthermore, that we need to do something with it and not boast about it, but lean into it and be taught by it. May it never be said of us by our Lord that we do not know the scriptures because he has made them available to us. And for that, I am thankful. So important that we appreciate the pure and true revelation of God given to us because of this next doctrine that has been highlighted in this text. And that is this, the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. This idea that man is totally corrupt. We see it in the Sadducees. We see it even in the fact that Jesus says of Peter, you have this truth about me, Peter. You didn't come to it because you're a smart guy. You came to it because it was given to you. Total corruption. This idea that man is totally broken. Now, total, it doesn't mean that every, uh, uh, that, it does mean, rather, that every aspect of our life, of my nature, of your nature, of the nature of your parents and the nature of your children, that it is broken. It doesn't mean totally depraved or totally corrupt. It does not mean that all sinners are as bad as they possibly could be or that anyone is as bad as they possibly want to be. It's not necessarily that. But that every aspect of your life is broken. Every aspect is corrupt. Not just your ability to morally do what's right and what's wrong, but also your ability to deduce what is true. 
Your ability to reason, your ability to even perform the sciences are corrupt and broken. Your ability to determine what on the news is actual news and what is fake news. Regardless of which side of the aisle you stand on, this is a challenging time because our depravity is highlighted. We're unable to really see and to know in and of ourselves And so total depravity means that no part of the personality, no part of your person is uncorrupted. The mind, the emotions, the will, the desire. One theologian says this, total depravity means the entire absence of holiness, not the highest intensity of sin. The entire absence of holiness, not the highest intensity of sin. And we see this truth in the life of the Sadducees. One, that they would come to their creator, as the book of Hebrews says. They would come to their creator and they would try to trip him up. Highlights their depravity, their brokenness, their corruption. Unable to even see who he truly is. Furthermore, that they had the scriptures, but in and of themselves were unable to see the truths that the scriptures were so clearly portraying. As Jesus points out, let me ask you this. How are you living in light of this doctrine? That your senses, your ability to reason, your ability to observe, your ability to know things for sure, how are you responding to that? Are you responding in arrogance? Pushing aside, of course I know. Of course I can determine. Of course I can walk in light. Of course I cannot stumble. Or, as you consider this doctrine of divine revelation and the doctrine of total depravity, are you not humbling yourself and in gratitude submitting yourself to the word of God, thanking him for his provision that as we walk in darkness and we in ourselves are darkness, God has given us his light. Church, I pray that we would continue to be a people that submit ourselves to the word of God, knowing that we in and of ourselves are broken and unable to walk in light. But that we need the Father and we need the Son to reveal truth to us. The book of Romans challenges us in light of these two doctrines and it says, let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true and every human being a liar. When your heart tells you one thing, when your eyes tell you another, and God's word stands altogether aside, would you not consider yourself to be broken and flawed and unable to determine the truth and rest wholly in the revealed truths in Scripture? These are the first two doctrines that rise to the top. I think the chief doctrine that I see rising to this, the the centerpiece of this doctrine, or this text, is the doctrine of the resurrection. The doctrine states that the souls of men, the souls of women, they live on after death. And this is how God can be the God of the living. That when God brings history to a close, he will raise up all the bodies of all human beings. From the first unto the last, he'll raise them up from their graves and he will unite them with their souls. With the righteous then being welcomed to eternal life with God. 
and the unrighteous being sent away into eternal torment. This is the doctrine of the resurrection, that we will all stand before God, either in our own righteousness, which is unrighteousness, or the righteousness of Christ. The doctrine of the resurrection. The Sadducees, they didn't see the teaching on life after, after death there in, in the books of Moses. They're convinced that there is no resurrection at the end of the age. And Jesus clearly pointed out to this reality that for those who are in Christ is our greatest hope and those who are apart from Christ is their greatest fear. They will stand before God resurrected. But it's not the only place there in the book of Deuteronomy. We see it throughout the New Testament. We see it throughout the Old we see it even in the, old, in, the, in the Psalms. But particularly, I want to draw your attention to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. There, the prophet, whom Jesus believed was a true prophet, said this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the future. We will all stand before God again, in our own righteousness, which is unrighteousness, and thereby be damned to hell, or in the righteousness of Christ, which he offers to all who will in humility turn from their sins and place their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 26, verse 19 says this, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise again. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. In addition to these explicit passages in the Old Testament are the pictures that are replete throughout the Old Testament. Resurrection is all over the place. It's a beautiful thing. Noah and his family, they're delivered from the flood. They're delivered through death, through judgment. Joseph in the pit, Israelites out from Egypt, the three friends from the furnace, Daniel out of the lion's den, the Jews from Haman's plot, Jonah from the great fish, death itself there in the deep. And all of these pictures, all of these stories of salvation, these stories of deliverance from certain death, they all nurture in the heart of the faithful this idea that God's promise to us is that we will not sleep. We will not be abandoned to Sheol. We will not be abandoned to death. The Torah taught it. The prophets foretold it. History foreshadowed it. And finally, Jesus fulfills it. The resurrection himself, as John 11 points out, was standing before them declaring that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. There will, in fact, be a resurrection. Hagerstown Church, we've seen five scenes. We've seen three doctrines, and I want you to get this main idea this morning. That man is unable to know truth apart from God's grace in revelation. That man is unable to know truth apart from God's grace in revelation. I think this morning of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is what the Word of God says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He spoke by Moses. He spoke by Daniel and Isaiah. But this verse goes on to say, but in these last days, he has spoken to us 
he has revealed himself to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the whole world he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs it's ironic it's beautiful that the very thing that they don't believe exists is standing right before them. The word of God, which took on flesh, is standing in their presence as they question him. The resurrection of life itself is breathing the same air that they are breathing. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God Removed from the garden. And what does the word of God say? What does it say? Lest Adam reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. When man sinned, he was removed from the garden. There in the garden was the tree of life. He was invited to eat from. And now, because of his sin, he's removed from the garden, unable to take and reach his hand out laying hold of that fruit, which is the tree of life. Adam lost his right. He lost his privilege. Removed from that garden, barred from that tree. And yet, that was our first Adam. That was the first Adam, the last Adam. What did he do? He came back to that tree in the midst of the garden. And what did he do? He died on a tree. And three days later, he came back from the dead. And what did he do? He ate of the tree of the fruit of life. And when he returns, church, he will be raised. And we too will eat the fruit, raised, resurrected, reunited with him, living forever with him. Church, friends that gather here with us this morning, have you ever been so sure of something, so confident that you were right, that you had it figured out only to discover that you were wrong? We see this morning that the Sadducees did. They came face to face with this idea that they had not respected or appreciated the divine revelation as they should. They had underestimated their own depravity and the ability to reason and to hear and to listen. They had missed the resurrection of life which was standing right before their very eyes. I pray that that would never be said of us, but that we would see in our own sinfulness, our inability to know truth apart from God's grace and revelation. I want to invite you to take a moment and reflect on the, the text and the sermon this morning. So if you would, would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Would you consider these three doctrinal truths this morning? How have you responded to the doctrine of divine revelation? Let me put it a little more pointedly. How will you respond moving forward to the doctrine of divine revelation that God has in his kindness and in his mercy revealed to us the truths of his nature and the truths of our nature? That we are eternally damned to hell, separated from him because of our sin, 
And yet because of the one who died on the tree, there in that garden, three days later rising, eating from that tree again so that we can be raised with him to eternally eat of that tree. Are you resting in that? Are you running in that? Divine revelation, total depravity, and future resurrection. These truths are true for us this morning. I want to invite you to reflect. Here in just a moment, we're going to sing this song. Come behold the wondrous mystery. I pray this morning that we would do that. We would look at this word and we would behold the wondrous mystery. In the dawning of the king, he the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Father, we praise you this morning because you have sent your son who took on flesh. He died and rose again. We behold that mystery this morning given to us in your word. Father, he was slain by death. We know this, no grave could ever restrain him. And we praise you, Father. We praise you, Jesus, because you are alive this morning. And as we gather as your church, we have a foretaste of deliverance. Would you cause our faith to not waver? Christ, we pray this prayer in the power of your resurrected life, waiting for you to return. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Hagerstown Church, would you stand?